we got a real simple plan. One man, one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. I think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day Podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, here's Reese Davis. The buzz at the sports Emmys, it had nothing to do with handing out statues. And also, what in the world will the Big Ten do if they don't have their marquee programs playing at night? Plus, South Florida head coach Alex Golish will join us in just a little bit. This is the College Game Day podcast for Tuesday, May 23rd. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel here. So, Pete, as it turns out, uh, a lot of the pre-sports Emmy buzz centered around a story that you wrote about the Big Ten media deals. And just as we set this up, for years and years, and most college football fans, most hardcore fans that would be listening to our podcast would be acutely aware of this. Once you reach a certain point in the calendar, mostly November, there are certain schools in the Big Ten that have uh, basically an agreement that they, they wouldn't play night games there due to a number of things. Not fear of the weather necessarily, but also difficulty on the fans getting in and out of some of these college towns. A, a, a number of factors that would keep them from playing in those certain conditions. That apparently hasn't all been ironed out. And it also turns out that... Um, there have been straightened circumstances for some of our broadcast colleagues vis-a-vis who might be broadcasting the Big Ten championship games in certain years. So how did this all, all play out, Pete, in terms of your reporting and where this leaves us now with the Big Ten television contracts? Yeah, Reese, it's an interesting moment in time for for the Big Ten. And there are certain things right now that are indisputable. One, that it's a bit of a sticky wicket that they're trying to navigate through right now, right? And that uh, Tony Bettini gets the job. There's some unresolved issues and some clear tension that he has to resolve. The NBC night game issue is clearly one of the big things. Um, How much that NBC deal gets ends up getting adjusted financially is still in the crosshairs right now. But that has certainly been a, uh, I I can hear your New York City uh, fire truck going by. That has been Tony Petiti's (laughs) fire truck uh, upon, uh, upon entering the, uh, upon entering, re-entering the college sports space on his uh, new job. How we got there is a very fascinating question, right? And I think uh, you, you can understand and empathize with this, Reese. As a reporter, it's rare that you enter a controversial situation where it's a white hat and a black hat, and one side is completely at fault, and the other side is totally absolved. Um, the The best way that I could probably encapsulate the NBC Big Ten quagmire right now is that everyone agrees it's kind of a mess, Right. And then most parties have varying versions of how the mess got spilled, right? Um, were they not informed that the night game tolerances were going to go away? Did people not know of the night game tolerances other than they were sort of nodded to and accepted? Um, when did they come up? Who did they come up to? Were they presented with? Did people have to pull them back? Those are all things that were debated going into the story and have since been debated uh, after the story. Um there's a there's a train of thought of from the school side, especially if we were never informed that these historic things we had agreed to for a long time is going to change. That's very fair. There's the industry side of things where people say, how could you possibly sign a three hundred and fifty odd million dollar contract and not expect to play night games? It's a prime time contract. 
So there are uh, there are some distinct versions of how we got here, and uh, and I think in the interest of fairness, it's not fair to point out it's this school's fault, this administrator's fault, this network's fault. It, it everybody sort of danced together, and nobody can quite. It's like the Spider Man gif, Reese. Everybody's like you know. Uh, standing around pointing at each other a little bit, but no one has disputed that it is a ma- a, a bit of a mess right now. And again, I, I want to be clear about this. It is not untenable, right? They are going to figure <laughs> this out. Like this is not going to blow up the deal. And and the, the story never hinted that it would, um, but it, it has taken some deft maneuvering. Um, one of the things that's unanimous on all sides of this is that Tony Petiti is the right guy to handle this. I mean, he mm-hmm. has extensive network experience, ABC, CBS, started MLB Network. He knows all these guys that he's negotiating with right now from all sides. So I would say one of the few unanimous things in this story has been everyone has been impressed with Tony Petiti and how he's faced the issues uh, head on. Do you know Tony, Reese? I don't know, like from ABC days or, or what, if you'd run I've across met him. him. Okay. I've met him. I don't know him well. But the fact that uh, one of my former colleagues and still closest friends, uh, Mark May, raves about him as a person, as an executive, as a gentleman of his word is is good enough for me. I mean, may they vouches for you, then that that works for me. So um, I don't know him well, met him, but and look forward to getting to know him a little bit better over the you know coming years now that he's back in in our space, per se. But I agree with you by reputation. He's the guy to navigate through this. Now, a couple of a couple of things, one comment and one question about this. The comment is that historically, college administrators love the windfall of cash that comes their way as a result of broadcast deals. But they have a notorious blind spot about the fact that they might have to acquiesce in some areas in order to get this windfall of cash. So that is not terribly surprising to me that they would think, well, of course it's just as good if you have Minnesota and Rutgers <laughs> playing at prime time on, oh, well, I'm Ohio State or I'm Michigan. I don't have to play that game, but but I still would like this money. So that's not at all surprising to me that the administrators would have that blind spot and think nothing's going to change despite the fact that Uh, They have this different kind of contract and different type of arrangement. The question I would have now, deal's not going to fall apart, but is it going to end up paying out as much as what they had initially said when when the deals were announced? Is there going to be a reduction in payout once everyone comes to terms? So I, I'm going to default to your comment to another GIF, and you can just like picture your your Big Ten blue blood mascot in the Scrooge McDuck like backstroke through the gold <laughs> GIF. Because um, yes, the schools certainly enjoy the riches, and uh, as most of us know, I, I didn't take a lot of math or business classes at Syracuse, but typically you've got to do something to earn the money, and. Uh, it is funny you did mention Minnesota Rutgers because there was a famous Paul Tagliabue quote um, when Minnesota, I'm sorry, when Rutgers joined the Big Ten saying nobody on Long Island or in New Jersey is going to stop their tennis match on Saturday morning to watch Minnesota play Rutgers. And Paul Tagliabue was a consultant for the Big East at the time. It did not go over well. That is, It was like one of the all-time like <laughs> gong quotes in uh, from that era of about 12, uh, 12 years ago. Um, to, to answer your question, I think it's at the point where they're ironing out the details and I think it will be less money. 
Um, when I first started reporting this story a couple of weeks ago, there was a pretty big number that was maybe less uh, attached to it. And the work of Tony Petiti combined with the work of Michigan State, Penn State, and Ohio State to acquiesce on some of these night game things. Uh, there's going to be a Black Friday Michigan State-Penn State game that Penn State wasn't told they were going to play, which they were very unhappy about. And then they were uh, they, they they agreed to do it um, after that to help for the good of the conference. Michigan State's going to go play a night game at Ohio State, and Ohio State's going to host the latest ever night game in Ohio Stadium history to help out in the short term. So there has been uh, a lot of people like we're we're very clear to be like, hey, make sure you give some attaboys to the people being good partners in the uh, in in the league. Mm-hmm. So. Um, those, those have been some short-term fixes. Now, I don't think those concessions, if you will, probably come without some sort of scheduling pats in the behind, um, you know, to go Mm -hmm. with them. Notably, Penn State has opened its season on the road in Big Ten play. I believe it's eight straight years, but it could be nine straight years. And after Pat Kraft complained about it at the last media day, they opened on the road at Illinois this year. And, uh, which, you know. So I would get. Well, I would. Sure I, would I, I wouldn't. I don't bet because we're 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 ethically not allowed to. But I would really bet after Penn State made this concession, they will not open Big Ten play on the road in 2024. I think that's going to be like one of the safer scheduling bets of all time. Just like it was completely predictable when Nebraska was being petulant during uh, during COVID that they were going to open up the season <laughs> at Ohio State. Like it was, you could see it coming from a mile away, and they. Uh, and they and they they ended up doing the Big Ten ended up doing that to them in the schedule. So I think there'll be some concessions and some kickbacks and some different things worked through. But I I don't think the the deal it, the way it's been presented to me as they're working towards a finish here is that the deal will be for less money. I don't know if it will be a monstrously less amount. Um, and that that sum that it was supposed to be has lessened uh, by tens of millions. I was told here in the in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Penn State and Michigan State should be happy to play their, you know, made-up rivalry game on Black Friday where someone might actually notice. I mean, I've made jokes for years dating back to my days in the studio of you can drag the record books to the recycle bin when they square off for the land-grant trophy, you know, and neither of them have a natural end-of-season rivalry. Um, Penn State because they have no one in state and because much to Michigan State's chagrin, their in-state rival views the Ohio State game and rightly so mm-hmm. as being a, a bigger deal. The Michigan State rivalry, while still important, is more of um, one of those distractions. It's agonizing when you lose because you have to hear about it. And then once you win it, you're like, okay, order's been restored and now we're fine. And you know, so and and I know that makes Sparty angry, but you know, that's life. So if they can get their if they can get their rivalry against Penn State, it'll never be you know what the other ones are. But if they can elevate it by giving it mm-hmm. a stage in front of everybody, then why in the world would you not want to do that? And the same thing for Penn State. And so this is going to work out well if this is an annual thing. I don't think it's annual on a stage. I, I, yeah, I, I know well, it I, should be. Look, yeah, well then yeah, maybe they I agree. I think that's a great suggestion. That, you know? um, my understanding is that game is projected to be in prime time that night. Um, like 
Yeah. Yeah. We all we all watched the Egg Bowl on Thursday night, even though some years the Egg Bowl is just a bloody mess of a football game, right? Most years actually. It's uh um and yeah, like look that Friday, you're trying to like, you know, not not go fetch the Thanksgiving leftovers from the fridge. Um, you know, little uh little Penn State Sparty would be a nice little uh nice little nightcap. Well, I called one of the uh I called one of the great egg bowl finishes of all time when uh there was a Thanksgiving night game and oh, yeah. Dak had been injured, yeah. wasn't supposed to play oh. and came off the bench and just willed, willed Mississippi state to the lead and to the overtime game. And then poor Bo Wallace, who had such great moments at times and such horrific ones uh, was running to extend the game into the end zone and just, just dropped the ball and, you know, fumbled into the end zone and uh, state got it. And, and defining moment for Dak. So, you know, then, when they look know, back on his career there and he had yeah. an unbelievable career there, like almost a build the statue career. That was one of that, that launched him, I would say. And if that game was on a Saturday at three 30, you wouldn't have called it. Nobody, not, not nearly as many people would have watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, hyperbolic perhaps, but it was, uh, Kirk yeah. Gibson esque sure. in his uh, you know because he he really he had a shoulder problem and really couldn't throw much at all uh, during practice that week and came in and just <laughs> and showed the force of his yeah. personality and ability to put the bulldogs on his back and and carry them to victory. So we'll look forward to more Egg Bowl moments like that, and maybe we'll have such land-grant trophy uh, nostalgia to someday discuss on the College Game Day podcast after a Black Friday edition of Sparty and the Nittany Lions. So it'll be interesting to see how it all all, uh, is figured out and who gets what money and who complains about leaving a little bit of money on the table and who snidely remarks about people who have moved on, who put themselves in such straightened circumstances after it was over. So all part of the, all part of the fun of college football. During the course of this off season, uh, Pete and I have been able to, uh, get together with a lot of head coaches during a time when they have extended period to visit with us. And we're happy to be joined by the new head coach at USF, Alex Golish, who has quite a distinguished and long resume, started his career in high school, was a student assistant at Ohio State, went through the ranks in Northern Illinois and Oklahoma State, Toledo, Illinois, uh, Iowa State with Matt Campbell, and then with Josh Heupel at UCF in Tennessee, and now getting his chance to run a program uh, Alex, this is uh, this is what my basketball colleague Seth Greenberg refers to as not skipping any steps, and he says for a coach that's great. But before we get to not skipping steps, the thing that stands out to me on your bio and resume is that you were born in Moscow, not Idaho, Russia. Uh, so tell me, tell people who don't know, including me, how that came about, how the move to the United States came about, and what that's uh, how that's influenced you and your career? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> believe it or not, I've actually coached in Moscow, Idaho as well. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it's actually kind of a cool place. Um, would, would have never guessed it, but it is a, it is a pretty part of the country, but Kibbe Dome. Um, the Kibbe Dome. That's right. Um, but we, um, you know, my parents immigrated here in 91. Uh, we were, we were, I guess, lucky and fortunate at that time where they were they were letting people out and my parents um 
took the opportunity and we we came and uh, moved to Brooklyn. My aunt, who's my mom's sister, was already there. You had to have a sponsor. So they sponsored us and um, we came and, man, made a life for ourselves. Um, you know, I think I think the coolest part of the story, and, and I think it was really when I got to Tennessee, it, it was like the first time anybody cared about the story. But it's uh, it was it it was it was neat to see looking back at it, just the journey my parents have had and, and everything they left behind because we didn't have it bad there. I think my parents sensed how bad it would be. And, and certainly you've seen what's happened in uh, certainly the last two years. But but even over the last 30, 40 years, I think they more than anything, I have an older brother that's three years older than I am. I, I think they wanted to avoid us going into the military. And so came came to Brooklyn and and uh, I fell in love with football. I, I remember we didn't have cable. We didn't have a lot growing up, but but looking back at it, I, I think it probably is what we needed. Um, but I remember watching watching network TV. I remember watching Ohio State Michigan on TV. I remember I remember watching the U on TV. Uh, those are the memories that you know USC and the Rose Bowl. Like like that's what I remember of college football and. I had an opportunity. Uh, my aunt had then was living in Columbus, Ohio, and I think my parents realized, man, this Brooklyn thing, living a living in an apartment above a bodega, probably ain't it. And and I wanted to play football. And at that time in New York, really, private school was the only way to go. The public school football's gotten a lot better here recently, but we ended up moving to Columbus, Ohio, and and fell in love with the game even more. We actually got to play on fields instead of on cement, and. Um, you know, I, I think in high school and towards the end of high school, I knew I wanted to coach and I'd always thought I wanted to coach and teach high school. And uh, obviously I've had some opportunities to, to keep keep growing. But but yeah, my parents gave up a ton, man. And uh, they're still in Columbus. They're actually moving down to Florida here, hopefully this summer um, to retire and, and kind of enjoy the, this this last part of their journey, which is hopefully hang out on a beach. Um, Alex, I think uh, another aspect of your journey to this chair that's really interesting to me is that you did not play college football. Um, I think most years, and I certainly haven't tallied up the 131, you can probably count on your fingers the the number of Division One head coaches who did not play college football. Uh, how, how did that shape your journey, Alex? And can you maybe give us a snapshot of the Ohio State that you saw as a student assistant there in the in the mid two thousands? I would imagine, um, despite not playing, you you had quite a bit of exposure to boldface name coaches and players. Yeah, you know, I had. Um, it's an interesting story. Um, uh, Mark D'Antonio had recruited one of my teammates, um, Jay Richardson, who had played at Ohio State, played in the league for a while. And um, him and our AD in high school were next door neighbors in Dublin, Ohio. And um, I got got to coach in high school. My my former high school offensive coordinator gave me my first job and, and hired me as a high school coach. He is now our director of player development here. Um, he's the guy that really got me into coaching and, and really showed me what it what it meant to really give more of yourself than taking from the group. And and um, what he's just he's been people say mentor. He he's guided me into this journey. Uh, really really special guy. But um, but I had called up Coach D'Antonio and Bob Tucker at the time. Today I, I want to get I want to get into into 
college. Like I want to get coaching. I'm, I'm here. And D- Dino had just left, went to Cincinnati and, and uh, Bob Tucker had hooked me up with Jim Haycock and it's like, man, Jim's, Jim's probably not the easiest guy to work for, but, but see if you can figure it out. And, and he was the D line coach at the time, ended up becoming the defensive coordinator uh, when Mark Snyder left to go to Marshall. And, um, and you know, like th- that group of guys, um, certainly Jim Haycock, who I had the luxury of working with his brother at Iowa State for four years. But Jim kind of took me under his wing. Um, and Luke Fickle uh, had just moved over to linebackers, and he took me under his wing. Paul Haynes, um, these guys that were like like just salt of the earth, incredible human beings. Uh, Jim Bowman uh, on the other side, and, and Joe Daniels, who – uh, who passed, but like just Daryl Hazel was the receiver coach. You talk about some guys that, that became head coaches, but some guys that didn't that, that like Jim Haycock was one of the best human beings slash coaches I've ever been around. And and he had been a head coach at Illinois state. And he's like, man, uh, this is it. Like, I, I don't want to be a head coach anymore. And so, you know, coach Trest did a ton for me and, and helped me help mold me in a lot of ways. But the best thing Jim Trestle ever did for me, and we actually just joked about it this spring because he's down down here, down this way now. Um, but when I was when I graduated, we had a couple of GA spots open, and um, I wanted to I wanted one of them. And he's like, "Hey, the best thing you can do is get out of here." He's like, "Everybody has a false false sense of what this place is. You know, like people are at Ohio State don't want to leave Ohio State. Like, you got to go see something else." And I had an opportunity to go work for Joe Novak at Northern Illinois, and Joe built that program from from really really bad to one of the best programs in the MAC. And um, and he's another Cleveland Ohio guy, and said, "Man, if you can go work for that guy and learn what it is to actually work, uh, you know, at Northern Illinois, you don't have a bunch of assistants." And boy, I learned that. Um, I, I was the video guy and the defensive GA at the same time, um, and so. It was, um, it was, it was, I was on one side, Brandon Staley was on the other side and Brandon Staley's now the head coach in LA and, uh, we were roommates and we, we figured out what it was to, if, if we really wanted to be college football coaches at Northern Illinois under Joe. So you're actually slacking compared to. <laughs> well, yeah, nice I, was, I was doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I was doing pretty good there for a little while and then. And then Brandon goes and gets an NFL head coach. So yeah, I'm, I'm way behind Brandon. <laughs> How do you compare, if we all are products of the people who have at least somehow influenced us or we've learned different things from, how do you compare Senator Trestle as a head coach and then working for Mike Gundy? What are the similarities and differences there? <laughs> yeah, so I had Mike... I was with Mike um, a year after he told everybody how old he was. Um, and so, you know, I thought he was a meme going there like, man, like this, this is going to be really interesting. You know what? Like, like Mike, you talk about a guy that, that I learned what, what it is to treat young people the right way. You know, he, he was the one guy that never referred to, to graduate assistants or quality control guys as, you know, GAs. It was always young coaches. I took that to this day. Uh, it's amazing what what young guys feel like when they're referred to as young coaches, um, rather than GAs or or you know whatever you want to call them. Um, really, really 
incredible guy in the sense that he was so happy to be at Oklahoma State. He was so grateful to be there. Uh, Trust in the same light, man. Like it, it felt like the last stop for those guys in a profession where I feel like everybody you run into is is trying to chase something else. Both Tress and, and Coach Gundy were beyond content to be where they were. Not content in the sense that they were going to be lazy with it. Content in the sense that that was their dream job, you know. And and so I learned the same thing from both those guys. Like just keep your feet planted where they are, man. And and Tress more than anybody taught me just do good at your job, do a good job at your job, and shut up. And uh, and and he certainly he certainly that resonated within that building. Uh, but I, I Gun, Mike was a way different guy, and we we talk on a different level now because uh, certainly as as peers, uh, he treated us like gold. He treated me like gold. Um, we had a pretty cool young coach crew there at the time, and and a really good offensive staff and a really good defensive staff. But I was on the defensive side. I'd always been a defensive guy until I got to Toledo, and so my interactions were my, with Mike were more just picking him picking my brain on what our install was going to be later found out that he was actually just trying to make sure he beat us on, on defense, but in, in spring <laughs> ball and fall camp. But at that time I was like, man, Mike is talking to me. This is a win. Uh, but really, really organized, really, really thorough, really detailed. I think the public persona Mike is probably a little bit different than, than what he actually is. And, and you don't win that many games and stay that consistent for that long. Like, like that's a program nobody talks about that. I don't feel like I ever hear like consistently winning in that conference. Like they've never actually swayed, you know, um, they've literally just consistently won, which if an AD is hiring somebody and you can guarantee what he's done, like Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. So Reese mentioned not skipping stops and you obviously are a, a collection of, uh, of, of all your accumulated knowledge, Alex. Uh, I do find it interesting that your, your last stop as a coordinator was at Tennessee and it's obviously, uh, you know, this, this frenetic modern style of football that you're going to carry over to USF and it's completely wildly different than the way Jim Tressel preferred to play football, which, you know, was obviously the old jokes of punt to win. Now he evolved too, as, as it came, I don't want to put him in a box, but I, I'm just kind of wondering, uh, you know, jokingly when he comes to your practice, like, you know, is he, is he like, did you learn anything from me? But, um, you know, when, when and where you decided when you're going to become a head coach, this is the style I want to play. And this is how I want to play and, and, and how that is formed and also how the style you picked up from Josh has also been informed by other stops because I know you use the tight end a little bit more and there's some wrinkles in the offense that you brought to Tennessee that maybe weren't at different stops. I just wonder if you can kind of talk about that accumulated knowledge and what it's going to look like, uh, you know, in, in green uh, when we all see it for the first week in September. Yeah, I, I think really interesting, you know, um, when we got to Iowa state, um, we, we all kind of collectively were intrigued by Baylor, um, you know, and Matt, Matt Campbell's is is a brilliant, uh, brilliant football mind, but also like a brilliant uh, guy in terms of like coming up with random thoughts uh, that make sense. Like like his whole deal was, and I was at Oklahoma State when Art had just gotten to to Baylor, and I was on the defensive side. So for me, I was always intrigued by what how they built that Baylor program and. And, you know, Matt had an interesting perspective on it as well. You know, like his deals, like, like 
man, like they didn't get really good until they got really good up front, right? And his vision of what Iowa State was certainly in a little bit different light, but like, how do we get really good here? Like, how do we out culture and out uh, recruit for, for what that place was, the Kansas States and the Iowas of the world? Because at the end of the day, it was, it, it's a similar program, similar geographically, similar who you can get. And, and so we had studied Baylor um, going back to like 11 and 12. And we were there in 16 arts last year. And we, we thought, man, like maybe that is the different that we need to be. Right. And so what happened, you know, they got let go there and, and Jeff Lebby, who, who I had become good friends with just being on the road and recruiting in Dallas over the years, Leb was out out of a job and and I said, man, Leb, will you come up and hang out with us here for a little bit in, in Ames and like give us like because at that point, you know, they weren't letting anybody in there and they weren't letting anybody oh, yeah. anybody really know what the heck was going on. So Leb came up and, and spent spent a bunch of time with us. And you know, I, I don't know that we didn't have the athletes necessarily to do what what we wanted to. We took a lot of different things from it. Uh, certainly some of the tempo, uh, certainly some of the way that they had practiced at the time. But but I don't know that we ever totally dove into the entirety of it. We picked and chose what we what we thought could fit us. And, you know, we had a lot of success on offense at Iowa State. Uh, again, I think similarly to – uh, what I said about Oklahoma State, I think success at Iowa State is just a different deal it, from a national national landscape. Probably not as big of a deal, although game day has been there a couple of times now and and um, a, a pretty cool deal. But but we use some of those pieces. Well, when when Leb left UCF and went to Ole Miss, um, you know, my connection with Josh, one, we re- we recruited in Dallas again together over the years. Um, and then his old line coach, Glenn Ellerby, who's still with him, and I GA together uh, at Oklahoma State. And they always talked about working together. And I give Josh a lot of credit because his humility in, in knowing, like, man, they had been at UCF for two years. They had been really successful on offense. But the fact that he needed to grow in ways, too, I, like I said, I, his, his humility to, to everything, but certainly offensive football and saying, man, like, like they were second in the country the year before I got there on offense. And, but, but we were not a good situational football team. We were one of the worst teams in the American on third down. We weren't good in the red zone. And when I got there, it was like, man, like those are the areas we got to improve. Like Alex, we don't need to wholesale change anything, but like we had gotten away from using a tight end. We had gotten away from being really, really successful in situational football and that's kind of what I was tasked with. And, and as crazy as it sounds, the COVID part of it helped because we got to spend a bunch of time, Josh and I, of really doing ball without any players and, or coaches or anybody, you know, and we, we continued to grow. And that, that was my tie to all of it, really Leb in a lot of ways uh, and hype taking, um, taking a flyer and saying, man, like the things we're not really good at right now you guys are at Iowa State, and, and, and I was fortunate. We had a really good tight end room. Matt gave me a bunch of input there, 
And uh, that was a tough place to leave. I, I love Matt Campbell to death. Um, you know, tough. I shouldn't say Ames, Iowa was a tough place to leave, but leaving Matt was a tough place to leave. And and um, and then we grew, you know, and, and then we got to certainly left left UCF and got to Tennessee. And man, I think people put us in maybe in a box a little bit of what we are offensively. But if you look at us from UCF to year one at Tennessee, we, we look like a different offense. And then you look at us from year one to year two at Tennessee, we look like a different offense. We had to evolve greatly. And I think to the naked eye, maybe you can't see it, but it, you guys that know ball and watch ball and break ball down, like we look different. And, and they're going to look different again with Joe at quarterback and Jalen Hyatt being gone and and that's the one thing about Josh is is he will force you to, and question you and everything that you do to get to the right answer. And um, and at the end of the day, it's not it, where Jim Trestle is proud. It still comes down to players' formations and plays. Um, and and so between Larry Karras and Jim Trestle, there it's still the same. Football has not changed in that sense. Um, but but what we've chosen to do is just do it really, really fast and, and use the formations just differently than, than some in, in terms of being able to play wide and tight and wide and tight and um, just continue to grow and evolve. And we're going to look a little bit different here because we got different personnel and, and we got to, at the end of the day, play our best 11 guys. So it's going to look a little bit different, but, but that was the evolution. That was the long story of, of Josh hiring me and me being intrigued by the system. And then, and then us growing within it. How would you how would you describe the state of the program that you found when you took the job at USF? Yeah, um, really unique unique place. You know, I've I've recruited in Tampa and and all the way down to like Fort Myers for, for a long time. I feel like everybody has been in Florida at some point recruiting uh, for the obvious reasons. Um, I'd always looked at this job and it was really intrigued. You got to remember when I was coming out of school um, and you guys will both remember this, but I remember, I remember turning the TV on in, in 2007. This was a year after a year after um, I graduated and you saw South Florida, West Virginia, saw Jim Levin on the sideline and like, who is like S Florida, like, like number two in the country S Florida at the peak of the big East. And, and literally I was like, man, that's cool. Matt Grothy, a quarterback, whatever. Like, they, like if, if you were going to ask me then where South Florida was, I would have told you probably in South Florida somewhere. Right. And, uh, which it's not, but, um, that's what I remember. And then as, as kind of gone, you know, I get to UCF and this was the rival, like this was it, like I four and, um, and really left it at that. Like I'd always been intrigued by what this place is, but it never looked into it a whole lot further. Now the last couple of years, as especially as I was at UCF and left, like, man, I wonder, I remember them being number two in the country. I remember them going to South Bend and beating South Bend. I remember them going to Tallahassee and beating, beating Florida State. Like, what in the world has happened here, right? And, and so when, when the job came open, and certainly after the season, we sat down and, and 
I was fortunate at the end of the year that that certainly we had the success we had at Tennessee. I was fortunate that that Coach Hype, you know, really did put me out there and help me in a lot of ways. And I, I had zero intention of leaving or taking a job. And then after the season, um, they kind of all came at the same time. Pete and I talked actually there for a little bit. Like I, I remember actually calling Pete and saying, what do you think about the South Florida thing? Um, and I asked about some others and the answer is kind of the same. Like, man, whatever it is, it, it, it's, it's missing something. Um, and, you know, as I was looking at these opportunities and certainly this one, it's like, man, like, what do you need to win? Like, like, you know, I think at Tennessee, it was the first time I really started to put a process together of, of what it was going to take if this was going to happen. But like, what do you need to win? Like, like you guys have done this as long as I have, like you need players, <laughs> like, holy smokes. Like, well, there's more of them within six hours of here or within six hours, within six counties of here, and certainly within three hours of here than anywhere in the country. Like, like it's a fact. And like, well, if we got players and there's a transfer portal where a lot of these guys leave, I, I, I spent years convincing these kids that they don't want to be in Florida. They want to be in the Midwest, right? Like the, the greenery and, and the, the Midwest hospitality and all of this that I sold. Now I'm like, why would you ever go to Ames, Iowa, right? Like, <laughs> or Champaign, Illinois, or Toledo. Ames is taking some strays here today. <laughs> well, it's certainly not. Ames is a great place with incredible people. But, uh, but, but you know, you flip it around. You're like, why would you go there? Um, and so that was the number one most important thing was, can you get players? And and if you can get players, awesome. Is there a commitment to to winning? Like, is there like an actual commitment to winning? And this this administration, certainly from our, our board of trustees down to to the to the athletics director, like like the commitment they've put into football. And they sat sat in my living room, and literally the commitment is that we're going to spend more money in the next six months on football at USF than we did in the first twenty five years of its existence. And um, and you know, they've done that. They've, they've certainly done that. They went and allowed me to go hire a staff. And you look at our staff, like, like it's a big time, big time staff, you know, from full-time coaches to the amount of analysts we have to, you know, we've got, we've got legitimately have seven full-time people in recruiting, which unheard of, you know, and so we're, we're doing it in a big time, big time way, the way we feed these guys, the way we, the way we educate them, the way they dress, like all of it from, from a facility standpoint is big time. And so that to me was what, you know, is there players? Can I hire a staff? Well, if I've got both of those things, we can go win. And, um, and certainly from an NIL perspective, is there a base? Well, you're, you're in Tampa, you're, you know, there's 52,000 students here. This is a huge, huge campus with with a ton of alums. And you're in Tampa, Florida, like like from a media market standpoint, from an infrastructure, from a business standpoint, there's opportunities in the NIL space that I think probably don't exist at most places. And so combine all three of those things, this job I thought was the best job in the market. Um, 
this past season. And and I say that like, like I've got a pretty worldly view and I'm not stuck in a box. Like I, I feel like I understand what's going on. Uh, but I felt like it was the, certainly the best job in the cycle. Um, and, and obviously blessed to have, to have been offered it. And, and after a lot, a long back and forth with, with my family, it was, I, I think it was the right decision. And since you've got there, there's been a lot of new faces that have that have joined you. Uh, walk us through, Alex, a modern roster overhaul, probably not as many headlines as Coach Prime, but really probably not all that different from how different things are going to look for Gary, Gary Bohannon and the crew, uh, you know, opening opening game of 2023 versus, uh, versus their final game of 2022 at USF. Yeah, I think we've been really, really meticulous, um, you know, in terms of how we've gone after it. Um, you know, I got here, there was a four week gap from when the previous staff had gotten let go to when I got here. And so, you know, there was a handful of guys, four weeks in college football right now and during a, <laughs> you know, a, a contact period. Like there's a handful of these guys, there's a handful of them with, uh, with coach prime. So hopefully he enjoys them, but they're, um, you know, there was there was certainly a handful of guys that that I didn't even get a chance to try to keep, whether we wanted to or not. I couldn't tell you, but there was a handful of guys that we knew weren't going to be fits right away. Then there was a handful of guys that we knew weren't going to be fits after spring ball. Um, but you know, as you look at what we head into the official start of summer with next week, we're going to end up with. 40 to 41, somewhere in those in that area, maybe even 42 guys that scholarship guys that are brand new from December 3rd to call it Memorial Day that we've been able to flip. Um, now, new guys doesn't mean that you're going to win games. New guys just means that that you've got an opportunity to flip a roster. And the way the rules are right now, where as a head coach, you've got 18 months. Um, it's, it's certainly benefited us. Um, but I, I feel like we've gone out and been so meticulous in the portal, so meticulous in the junior college world, um, that I feel like we've got some pieces in place and we got some guys, again, we've won four games here in three years, so it's not covered like, like, uh, some other places, but to be honest with you, I kind of like it that way. Um, we'll, we'll allow it to get covered when when college game day comes to Tampa and, and you guys got a reason to cover it. But it's our job to give you a reason to cover it. Um, so it's been um, it's been crazy. Yeah, 40, like I said, 40, 41, 42, somewhere in there of, of new guys out of 85. Uh, I've been really, really proud of the work our staff has done to go and – find these guys really evaluated. We, when I say we've worked tirelessly to take the right guys, um, it's been, it's been, there's some guys here that you wouldn't think would be here, but they are because I think in a lot of ways we've done it the right way. We've got a, a really, really good staff. Offensively, it's been relatively easy because the production kind of sells itself. Defensively, I've got Todd Orlando running the defense who's you know, I've admired going back to, uh, when when I got to coach against him when he was at Texas, I think one of the really really good coordinators in in college football, and and certainly guys want to go play for him. So it's been uh, it's been a really really fun ride to try to build it and and not just take as many guys as you can in the portal, but try to build a roster for sustained success as we go here. 
Um, and we'll find out early. We, we, we get Western Kentucky week one, and, and that's a really good football team, well-coached, and we'll find out really early. If, be some points in that game, huh, Alex? Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I would hope so. Hopefully we score one more than them, you know what I mean? Well, Alex, let's wrap up here. You've been really generous with your time, and, and we really appreciate you jumping on with us today. I want to ask you about uh, Gary Bohannon, who won the Sugar Bowl as Baylor's starting quarterback two seasons ago, started at USF last year, had a shoulder injury about midway through the season. Uh, you oversaw Hendon Hooker's career resurrection when he transferred from Virginia Tech to Tennessee, and uh, obviously that, that laid itself bare in the NFL draft and with his, you know, eye-popping statistics that, that he put together is uh, his, his TD to interception ratio at Tennessee was something preposterous, like 50 to six. Um, and that's a, those are ballparks, but you know, what have you seen in Bohannon so far? And could there be, Oh, three, sorry. <laughs> only. It's all, it's yeah. all good. Well, you would, Semantics. you would know, I mean, you, you would have spent the time studying it. So I was going off the top of my head. So forgive me, forgive me for that. I certainly don't want to gift Hendon any picks. Uh, Give me a sense of the skill set of Bohannon, and could we see a similar rise or a similar uh, a similar ascent? Yeah, um, you know, Gary is a really, really neat um, young guy. He's not young; he's twenty four. Um, wow! He got a he got a three year old little little son. He's he's Gary is, is mature beyond his years. Gary reminds me a lot of Hendon, um, in, in terms of his, his mannerisms, his personality, his leadership style. Um, he, he's not loud until he has to be, uh, he, you talk about a young guy that lives in that facility. One, he's rehabbing his shoulder, uh, but like hangs out like walks into the staff room and sits down and, and you know, talk about culture earlier. Like he feels like he can walk in and sit down as he should. It's, it's just as much his program as it is anybody else's. So um, reminds me a lot of Hendo and in, in all the, the off the field stuff. Um, you know, I recruited Gary out of high school. I remember going to, going to Earl Arkansas and, and seeing him, um, and I've always been fascinated by who he is as a young guy. And then you saw the run at Baylor and, um, and certainly winning the Big 12 there. Um, he's got every intangible you would ever want um, from, again, the leadership, the, the time commitment it takes to be an elite quarterback. That's one thing that, that's not talked about a lot is, is you can have every trait and every tool you want, but there's a lot more than the 20 hours that the NCAA allows you to, to be with, with the coaches that it takes to be an elite level quarterback um, at our level, at any level. Um, it, it takes hours and, and, you know, it, it takes hours and then years to, to become an elite level quarterback. He's done all of that up until this point in his career. Um, I've only seen him throw, full speed as of the last week. Um, it really is the first time he's actually been able to really throw a ball uh, coming off of a labrum. Um, he's giddy, excited, all of it, you know, and, and told a couple of people, like he actually took more reps this, this spring than anybody else um, because he took all the ones, the twos, the threes from behind um, from, you could see it on film. It's it, it like warms your heart a little bit when you're watching film that he's, 15 yards behind, going through the progressions, going through everything. 
um, took every single rep from seven on to inside run to team. So he's got mental rep, reps banked up. Um, it's just going to be a matter of what his transition is like this summer into actually throwing and, and running the offense actually from behind center. Um, but mentally, I have zero qualms. I think physically there's enough on film over the last four years to tell you that he could be one of the better quarterbacks in the country. Um, he's so excited about the system and and what it is to create space and the tempo and like like literally he's like a little kid. He's like like man, like he can't get enough of it. Hendo was that way, where Hendo like just loved learning and loved growing. Um, so and I, and I hate to compare a, a, a young man to another young man um, in that sense. But certainly they, they both possess a level of maturity uh, that I, I feel. And I mentioned Gary having a little guy because, like, I think that says a lot that he's, he's like, he's actually, like, takes a lot of pride in being a really good dad. And it's, like, warms my heart to see that, too. Um, just a really, really neat dude. Uh, and Gary's hosted every recruiting weekend since we got here. Um, he's so, so all in on having an incredible sixth year. Um, and we've surrounded him with, with some really, really good wideouts. Um, we took a couple of transfers that I think like could be really, really high level in what we do. Uh, certainly some guys that were here that are still here that we've chose to keep that could be high level in what we do. And, um, and man, if he can stay healthy and, and keep going on a, on this trend, I, I think he's bound to have a really big year. Alex, it's been uh, great talking to you. I, as Pete mentioned, grateful for your generosity with your time. Wish you a lot of luck at USF and look forward to getting college game day back down there at some point when, when the Bulls get it rolling again. Congratulations on getting the job and, and thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. I respect the heck out of both of you guys, so I really, really appreciate you guys having me on. All right, that is Alex Golish, a new head coach at USF. You have been listening to the College Game Day podcast. Download this podcast wherever it is that you prefer to get your podcast. See you next time.